Hello and welcome to Calling the Shots. Behind every successful sports organisation exists a commercial game changer. An individual who drives the off-field wins. Calling the Shots tells the stories of some of these innovative characters. How did they get there? What are they truly passionate about? What drives them? And what drives them crazy? My name is Andy McGeady. We're powered by William Fry and I'm glad to have you along. In this episode, I talked with someone who won two Emmys as a producer with ESPN before moving to Ireland and the UK to manage their operations there. He then shifted focus to technology and the potential of the blockchain. So we talked about blockchain, its potential in sports, what it is, what it is not. We talked about moving to Dublin and the nature of critical thinking in technology. Today, I'm calling the shots. It's Eamon Donnell. I remember where I was when I first saw NASN. Right. So for someone who does not have access, if you think, you know, however many years ago it was, there's no baseball, nothing like that exists in Ireland and the UK regularly. NASN appeared in our screens. And that's the link that we have with you. So Eamon Donlan, how did you arrive in this part of the world? Well, I guess I guess that's that's a great introduction. I guess uh, I have to give a bit of backstory now. I was working at ESPN in the States. And uh, I got a passport for the first time in my life, as many Americans don't have one, Uh, 27% actually at the time. Anyway, I found out, but uh, came over to Dublin, Galway, London, and Amsterdam, first time overseas, and I Googled American sport on my journey just for the crack and eventually got a reply from NASN saying, yeah, I'd have a coffee, which is, and uh, so I met with the guy running running the operations, and uh, yeah, he was kind of a bit offish to me at the time. I didn't really understand why. Uh, three months after I returned from my trip, it was announced that ESPN bought NSN for $100 million. And uh, so unbeknownst to me at the time, he thought I was like a spy coming over here to suss out the operations where I didn't even know him. I was just here on holidays, you know. I didn't know the purchase was in, in place. So I started banging on executive doors, happened to know, you know, some of the heads at ESPN at the time. And they said, sure, you know, um, six months later, I was on a plane. And in fact, the only Disney lad to ever come over here full time because a year and a half later, the Premier League rights became available and it was off to London and, and launching the, the Premier League channel for ESPN over in the UK. And we brought all the team over from Ireland that we could. And, and yeah, built out a 10 channel facility over there. And, and away we went with all the European rights and, and the American rights. So why did you want that job? Uh, to know, I wanted to spread American sport across Europe. You know, I had never run operations. I'd been a producer, so I didn't know any of that side of the business. Um, but it was just an amazing opportunity. Like, there, the, there are very few times where you can say you're the only doing something. And obviously, ESPN saw the opportunity as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just an opportunity to do something that hadn't really been, hadn't been done. And, and NASN had been the only ones doing it. So you found yourself... Over here, when I say here, UK and Ireland for how long in the uh, end? So I was in Dublin for two years, although I didn't see my flat here as often as I'd like. And uh, and then, yeah, I was in London for three, so, and then we went, we went to Hawaii. So that would have been about five and a half years total over here. So then how do you jump from there into blockchain? Because that's the gap, right? There's a big gap here that, from my ignorant head... I need you to explain. Well, the answer is ignorance, to be honest. So I we I wanted business experience, and I was going to get an MBA and looked at it. I'm just not that that type. And uh, a mate of mine who was on air for ESPN, a guy named Neil Everett, he had been in Hawaii for 15 years, put me in touch with this lad there running the TV stations there. And I said, forget about an MBA. You come here and learn sales on the streets of Honolulu in the islands. So I wake up 
my girl at the time, middle of the night, I'm like, do you want to go to Hawaii, you know? So six months later, we're on a flight, and I'm there, and I, one of the guys I met early on was running a co-working space in 2012, and he was trying to make, like, Hawaii, like, the islands of Bitcoin, and he was doing Bitcoin ATMs and all this stuff, and so I started researching the technology. I was intrigued by the cryptocurrency, but I was much more interested, actually, in the technology underneath it, having run operations, you know, that was how my mind was working at the time, and as I was transitioning to sales, I needed something on the side. So I started doing startup weekends and all this other startup stuff. And uh, yeah, I just started researching blockchain. And um, so I kind of got stuck in um, and, and really just learned it from a business perspective really early on. And they, I, I actually am more attracted to the decentralized thinking behind it, not necessarily just the technology itself, like how we can operate our world in a borderless society in some regards. Not that I think that's a political term because some people use globalism as a political term. I think that's kind of outdated. Realistically, we're all connected now globally via technology, so we should probably be more efficient as humans um, in a lot of ways, and, and blockchain offers a lot of that opportunity. Okay, so we're going to spend, you're, you're going to get a 30-second elevator pitch to explain to anybody listening, what is blockchain? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like doing that, uh, but I will, of course, because it's, you know, it's the standard. But, um, you know, distributed systems have been around for a long time, so really there isn't kind of anything too new to blockchain as far as the way we think um, but but really what it what it does is it decentralized is you know it, it's a concept right for me and I don't like to dive into the technology alone because by itself it's just a database blockchain is just a database and and reality when it's really at its most potent is when you combine it with a lot of other things um, and so a decentralized system has a lot of opportunity but but not as a standalone database, right? So when you combine it with a market or a currency or a supply chain system or even an IoT, if you want to get deeper into technology, that's when it adds attributes to, to those other entities that, that really, really kind of brings out the potential. In the long run, I don't think we'll talk about blockchain much, to be honest with you. It'll just be kind of like the internet became where... It's underneath everything. You know, you used to type in your TCP IP to get your email into an Outlook, right? Mm. If you remember that back then. And you didn't know why you did it. You just did it. That's kind of how blockchain, I, I think, will work. In the end, it's just going to be the underlying technology that allows these distributed systems and cross-border payment systems and more efficient supply chains over the long run uh, to execute in, in a decentralized or distributed fashion. Um, Okay, so when I, when, I, when I read about on these various marketing blurbs about investment opportunities yeah. or company this presenting at conference that and it's, it's blockchain in lights, is my radar up? Because they are, they're really pushing blockchain when really that could be anything. I mean, it, it, if, they're, if it's blockchain around a, a gambling opportunity, well, actually, that isn't really why... I should be investing in you. So I want to ask you different questions. Am I am I wrong to think that? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't really think about blockchain as the answer, right? You need to just like you would with any project. It's really what is your business value proposition? What is your strategy to the market? And then how does the blockchain technology support that? Hmm. But if if they're pushing blockchain as the as the solution, then yeah, you you need to do a lot of digger, you know, deeping uh, deep digging, right? You know, it's 
it's <laughs> it's just an underlying technology that provides things that you know other pieces of technology don't in some capacities. So uh, you're right to to think the way you are. If they're leading with blockchain, then yeah, be skeptical and understand what all the other pieces of their offering really really mean. I mean, is it currency based? Is it something that's operational based? And then dive into that and understand. It's just like anything else. Do they have a, a great team? Do they have a business value proposition? Uh, do they have a core market that they're targeting? You know, it's this technology is not a magic bean. Um, it's not going to go solve problems by itself. Um, so yeah, great if they have technology as the core. That's that's amazing, but but what are they surrounding it with to make it work as a viable business? And a lot of the technology is too immature to even really be applicable in the real world yet. It's early stages. It's infrastructure building stage. Mm. And so a lot of the solutions, if they're using a public blockchain um, instead of a private solution, which we, we would go off track on this conversation with, but um, if they're using a public solution, a lot of the technology is still immature and, and not ready for, for prime time yet. Okay, so let's try and ground it. Let's try and ground it in the possibility of using blockchain as part of an infrastructure, as part of a solution, but in the sporting realm, okay? What are the potential possibilities for the use of this? Granted, it isn't going to be the, the all-singing, you know, all-dancing solution, but what kind of fields within sport can you see it taking hold? Yeah, I mean, one of the easiest ones is tickets. I mean, you know, you have a, a very, think of a centralized system, right? where a, a centralized party owns all the control of something. And, and the ticketing system is either the initial issuers of the tickets, whoever the governing bodies are, the sporting associations or the teams, and then the market takes them and all of the scalpers then own it realistically, right? And the general public only has access to so many that centralized control of supply and demand goes through those individual parties and they control all of that. Whereas a decentralized system allows you peer-to-peer uh, to, to trade. So like, you know, you, you have access to things that you wouldn't normally have access to because there's no centralized party controlling the ecosystem. So we all have access to, to tickets in a different, a different method. And so it depends on how it's applied in the ticketing realm. But the reseller market of the tickets is, is one of the early use cases that is showing a lot of potential. And depending on how the technology is executed, could, could provide that solution where you, you don't have these centralized powers holding all of the, the ticket exchange post the initial issuance and um, and I think that's probably one of the ones that will showcase the you know the the true use of the technology early on um, long term I'm a big believer in intellectual property being one but um, that's more complicated and will take years to get to let's give it another minute explain to me what you mean by that the intellectual property aspect well use to you because if I talk in concept we'll all be bored but it, to use something specific it's it's sporting rights specifically right so like you know uh, whether it's FIFA or in, in the states the NFL whatever you know governing body that owns a sporting right and then licenses that out um, it's a challenging system when everything's kind of centralized through one or two bodies and then you have a couple of rights holders that own all the control and the power so the consumer doesn't have any choice. They have to purchase Sky or BT or they, they have to purchase ESPN um, because of those centralized controls throughout that ecosystem. But if you decentralize that process over the long term, yeah, it's scary for those big bodies that have all the central control now, but for the initial rights holder, they can reach the consumer in a lot of different ways. But it will take a long time to get there. You have to have standards. You have to have unique identifiers. All the way down to each piece of media needs to have its own identity. And identity is not solved on the blockchain yet. And so for the individual consumer to really be able to utilize some of these decentralized technologies, 
there's other progress. You need lots of mass buy-in for some of these things. And so I don't think that's a realistic conversation to have now hmm. around that concept. I just long-term, like conceptually, I see it as like, wow, that's, that would be amazing. That would allow anyone to watch the Premier League anywhere in the world in the right ecosystem. Uh, and I think you could probably monetize that in a way that still makes sense. But I don't know. I don't know if you can. You know, it, we, we don't know what it's like without centralized control. So yeah. maybe not. You know, maybe that's too utopian. So one of the things that I understand to be quite interesting about blockchain is the concept of a smart contract. So something happens and that will trigger something that will absolutely happen yeah. upon that first happening. Okay. But then I started to think about it. And I said, well, what if you, like humans change stuff? We change our minds, something goes wrong, we need to pull it back. How do we do that, even conceptually, in blockchain land? Welcome to the challenge of, of the blockchain sector, right? I mean, so the term immutable comes up a lot. You'll read that a lot, right? So it's like, well, great, that's amazing. You can't lie, cheat, or steal because it's in, it's in stone. It's on the chain. You cannot change that. And then... You get to the point of like, well, if you look at a customer service realm, it's like, well, that's primary reason banks exist or other other entities exist is to solve human problems when things change. So that's what people are trying to figure out with smart contracts. Is some people would say they're neither smart nor contracts, you know. Uh, and so you, you you know, there's a lot of consternation around around the concept of smart contracts. Being in the industry and having worked on a platform that does just smart contracts, uh, yeah, it's a bad term. You know, it's it's a, excuse me, it's a bastardized term, right? It's you know, it's it's like realistic. We like to call them digital agreements, but yeah, I mean, can you program in? A, you know uh, all the different iterations of potential you know possibilities for every type of contract no so in, in the short term it, it will work for specific processes and specific projects um, but yeah this is one of the challenges of the technology people trying to force every idea into the technology instead of thinking decentralized and distributed coming up with something that's great and then going ooh could I use a blockchain here that's how we need to be thinking Instead of going, I have a blockchain idea. No, you don't. Like you need to have a business problem and solution, like you would in anything else in the world. And then eventually, when you get to the technology, you go, okay, can a distributed system or a, you know a decentralized ecosystem or a blockchain you know support this? And would it add value? That that's really how we need to think. We do need to think more decentralized. It is hard. I mean, that's what we all tried to do in the sector. It's like have people think decentralized, and then they'll know if this even makes sense. But there's too many people trying to make money just off the term blockchain that slow us down. So you are not so much a blockchain evangelist as a decentralization evangelist. You're, you're going to get me caught out here, aren't you? But uh, no, I'm not. I mean, I, I, I'm a decentralized thinking guy, okay. right? If we can think in a way that like borders don't exist for some things, mm. right? Like I'm not saying nations go away and we're all this big group of humans holding hands singing Kumbaya together. But like, you know, like can we all think in a decentralized fashion, figure out where these types of systems are more efficient to save our planet, to be more efficient with our resources? And the reason why I'm so passionate about sport is it, it kind of bleeds through a lot of those things like you can use it in sport and people don't realize you're solving real human problems with it and and it's like an easier entry into the market and not a lot of people use sport for technology and it's changing now over the last 10 years but so i like sport as the entry point because it kind of allows you to not think about blockchain as much hey let's just figure out the solutions and Mm. And get to the technology later, but no, I'm a, I'm a big decentralized thinking guy. I'm looking at social contract theories all the way back to as humans when we first started purchasing land and all of these different things that the blockchain you know kind of touch on. That's where I was going to go with this. So it's it's about building trust and about building trust in new ways that are very peer to peer, no matter where those two peers are, 
and you don't necessarily need that middleman. And traditionally in society, we've always had the trusted middleman. When we had banks, you built a very large bank of brick and steel because you wanted people to have confidence in the middleman. So we're in potentially in a new world. Um, but you mentioned thinking a lot, okay? And one of the things that I have noted that you uh, describe yourself as a Socratic, okay? Sure. What's what's your interpretation of a Socratic? Mm, that's a good one. Uh, well, it's it's questions, right? It's it's. Uh, I ask a lot of questions to the point of annoyance, um, but almost everybody I know, especially when they're asking me for maybe advice about their business or how to grow an opportunity, they, they know the answer. But they have so many opportunities at their disposal now that they get overwhelmed with with you know paralysis, paralysis by analysis, right? And uh, usually I just ask so many annoying questions that I pull the answer out of them and then I, I show them a mirror. Like, you have the answer, right? So I ask questions. I, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything, especially not going to know your business better than you if you're in it every day, right? So, um, you know, and, and you know, you kind of mentioned the trust factor with blockchain, uh, and that is the core get. First of all, you get it better than, you, than you, you know, you're saying you do. And secondarily, like, you know, it, it does come back to kind of these core principles, right? You know, and um, with anything, to me, it's, it, it's usually somebody knows the answer to what they're trying to achieve. And, and so I use kind of the Socratic method to, to help people find what they already know. Do you think that works because of the position that you find yourself in going to talk to somebody as opposed to maybe within a corporate environment? Yeah, no, it, it's frustrating for people in a corporate environment. I've worked in both. I worked for Disney for 11 years, and now I've been in the startup space. It's easier in the startup space. That, that's what I'm wondering. Did you apply the same type of thinking and questioning within that big corporate environment? Yeah, I'm sh- shocked I didn't get fired in 11 years. I almost <laughs> did a few times. Um, probably should have been, in in retrospect, uh, made some decisions that weren't, weren't always favored. But, yeah, no, I, I unfortunately, when I was younger, I fought. I really fought the power structures above me. Um, and uh, and part of it was because of that approach. It's, I was always questioning, well, can't we do things better? And in the corporate environment, the answer is like, yeah, yeah, but know your role. Whereas in the startup environment, it's like, yeah, let's how can we solve that today? And so it, it you know, you do need almost. I'm a believer that you need a little bit more founder thinking and startup thinking in the corporate world, and you need a bit more corporate structure to to the startup world at times as well. Um, there's a middle ground there sometimes that can be efficient, um, and I've done my best to, to blend the two, having lived in both worlds, um, to, to kind of find that, that medium ground. In terms of the startup structure, what, what corporate elements would you see as being, you know, real bang for the buck in something which is just starting, it's bootstrappers going, Let, let's get something there, let's get an MVP out there. What corporate element do you see as adding value straight away? Well, it's interesting. Actually, you know, what corporations do, right, is they scale. <laughs> and they can scale most of the time because they have resources at their disposal. So they can afford to do a little pilot group over here on the left, uh, pump it out, and if it fails, then do 10 of those, and one of them will be good. You know, Apple has proven this and all these other big companies. But, you know, that that is a startup mindset, right? I mean, it's it's that get it out there test it in the market. They have consumers usually at their disposal, so they'll test it out in the real world or they're tested in an incubation in their own company. Uh, so I think maybe having a bit more structure to how you think as a startup, you know, think like a corporate. Think, okay, can this scale across eight regions and then test it in a way that proves one region or one section of that? And and although people would say to me, well, that's a startup mindset, I, I think there's a lot more of a corporate mindset there than you realize because they're all built to scale mostly, you know, at least across their own regions, if not around the world nowadays how many 
excuse me, big companies are not multinational, you know, um, not so many anymore. You know, everybody's looking at a global perspective and you have things like Brexit and, you know, different political structures in, in around the world, what's going on with Asia, you know, you kind of are always looking for that next market that you could save your business or expand your business to. When you think about those different areas that you arrive in, you've worked in uh, the States, you've worked in Europe. Are there different cultural aspects that can be more receptive to questioning, for example? Yeah, oh, no question. Um, you know, I think that you, you have to know your audience at all, at all steps of the game, not, not just to your market when you're marketing, but internally, your internal stakeholders. Are some CEOs from different backgrounds or regions or countries um, more receptive to that line of questioning or, or that line of thinking and approach? Uh, 100%. Um, but it depends on where their target market is, right? If, if, they, if you reach some consternation with them on that and, and they're targeting a market that maybe would suit that approach more, then maybe you can, you can kind of move them your way. But if, if you're trying to help them in their own region and it, it's not really part of their culture, then, yeah, you need to have a different tact. And my Socratic method is not something that I adhere to at all, you know, at all days of the, you know, of the week. I mean, it depends on who I'm in front of. I have to know my audience. And, you know, otherwise I get popped out of the office like anybody should, you know. Hmm. So... You're coming back to live in Dublin. What do you look forward to the culture of Dublin? I mean, it is, it's a very big tech hub now. Is there something about that culture-wise you think will be good for you? Oh, yeah, this was not an accident, right? I mean, I, I got into media. I, I've married back in and I can't get out now if I try, is what I always say. Uh, you know, when we went to Silicon Valley, uh, so we were in London, then we went to Hawaii, then we went to Manhattan, and then to the Valley. The Valley decision was for this, was to come back here. Like, the media is great here, but it's small. Sport is, is sporadic. Uh, so my, my opportunities were probably going to need to be in other areas or to at least add more to my, you know, be more versatile. And, and so I dove into tech in the heart of it. Um, but the culture here is what I'm looking forward to, the opportunity. To me, Ireland... Um, and I say Ireland, not Dublin. I, Ireland should should really be the gateway to Europe in a lot of ways and the bridge back to America. And, and with all the <clears throat> chaos around us in the political sphere, what an opportunity, you know. And uh, and so I'm, I'm super excited to just play my part, see how I can help people um, and, and see how I can integrate into the community here and, and, and you know, just, just make my contributions the best I can and get to know people and and enjoy it but the culture is what I'm excited about it's it's really become such a hub and um, I think in you know over the next 20 years we're going to see all of that come to fruition even more than we have in the last 20 years fingers crossed okay I think we'll leave it there Eamon Donlan thank you very much thank you you've been listening to Calling the Shots powered by William Fry and all our guests on the series are part of 10-2019 subscribe to the show on iTunes SoundCloud Stitcher or wherever you pick up your podcasts my name is Andy McGeady I hope to talk to you again soon